0: punk kid from
1: uh, Southern Ontario in Canada. This is James K.A. Smith. Grew up very working class. Neither of my parents graduated high school, actually. Hmm. Later, got GEDs. So I was the first
2: person in my whole family to go to university or college. Jamie's a professor at Calvin College. He's an engaged public intellectual and cultural critic. He's the author of some of my favorite books, including Desiring the Kingdom, You Are What You Love, and more recently, a really phenomenal book called On the Road with St. Augustine. He's also the editor-in-chief of Image Journal, a Christian literary journal that publishes some of the best poetry, fiction, and nonfiction essays.
1: And grew up in a small town uh, called Embro, which is a Scottish community in southwestern. Oh, so if anybody has ever read Roberts and Davy novels about his his Deptford trilogy, that's basically the world I grew up in. Okay. So kind of a vague Presbyterian <laughs> agnosticism was sort of Mm -hmm. the water that we swam in um but i wasn't raised in a christian home or in the church Mm -hmm. and uh probably the most significant experience of my childhood was uh the divorce of my parents Mm -hmm. when i was 11 and my father uh kicking my mother me and my brother out of the house and moving in his mistress and their kids immediately yeah it was it was uh it's the kind of thing I didn't even know how upset or angry I should be about till I was about 36. Wow! <laughs> wow. So that, that was, and, and the reason, I, the only reason I want to mention that is because if, so you fast forward, I'm 18 years old. I've spent high school, um, as a weird combination of a jock and artist. So I'm, I've played football, but I've really rode b m x bikes religiously hmm. and uh created magazines to go with them okay uh and when, in which we had poetry and all this kind of stuff so i was i was a a magazine editor early on yeah <laughs> and but I started uh dating this girl who uh we went to elementary school together, and uh her family were christians hmm. and she was little backslidden, doing a little missionary dating. But it was through dating her that I basically came into the orbit of the gospel, which I, I, I honestly had just never heard before. Hmm. And and when her family her uncle and her dad especially sort of just explained the gospel to me, I was like, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I wasn't I wasn't a rebel or an atheist or something. It was just like, oh that and, and actually immediately felt a kind of call on my life i would say Hmm. but probably equally significant was the fact that her her home she grew up on this farm and her aunt and uncle lived there too and it was basically this kind of commune (laughs) you know and and i was so enfolded into this community of love where there were dads around to be very honest and um so I sometimes say, on the one hand, I was intellectually convinced by the gospel, but I was sort of loved into the kingdom of God. And mm. um, that girl's name was Deanna. Uh, and uh, when I became a Christian, I, so I mean, I have, I'm like straight up evangelical in this part of me because I, I still remember praying in my bedroom on October 10th, 1988, the day after my 18th birthday. And, you know, asking Christ into my life, also having a very tangible sense of Jesus kneeling beside me in the room. And Mm. that, that tangible experience is something that I have revisited in my life at very, very key moments. Yeah. But when I told Deanna uh, that I became a Christian, she was like, what? This is not what I signed up for. So about a week later, though, she came back to the Lord and we've been married 29 years now and uh, sort of journeying in faith together.
2: How old were you when you got married?
1: I was 19 when we got married. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So what happened was uh, um, very immediately I experienced a kind of radical sense of call when I became a Christian. And because of the, I became a Christian through the Plymouth Brethren tradition, which a lot of people don't know, but as one clue, they basically invented dispensationalism. Hmm. So it's a real rapture-ready kind of Christianity. And as such, the only thing I could imagine being called to was preaching, ministry. And in fact, I started preaching... Uh, within a year of becoming a Christian because they have this sort of itinerant circuit rider kind of ministry and things. Mm. So I went to Bible College, which was, there was only one Plymouth Brethren Bible College in Dubuque, Iowa, and I went there. We got engaged that year basically because well, where we came from people got married young anyway. It was sort of a working class pattern, mm-hmm. but also we had a sense that we were called to something together. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was 19. Deanna was 21. This is totally an Andrew Peterson song, by the way. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, we went back to Bible college together for a year and, we, uh, got pregnant that year, started having kids right away. So we got, oh. we had kids started having kids two years after we got married. We, we were in school, Together, married for nine years, because I went right from bachelor's degree to master's degree to PhD, and we had all four kids before I was done the doctorate. So it was it. It's not something I necessarily recommend, but (laughs) we we wouldn't do it any differently, and we were just sort of um, being obedient and also love each other a lot.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I got married at 19 as well. Yeah. So yeah. look at us. It's, it's here we are. Yeah. We play Shania things. Twain
1: songs. Looks like we made it, right? <laughs> That's right. They said, <laughs> I bet they'll never make it.
0: <laughs> There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on it seems to hustle. And the colors all around Now first he sings And then he goes And what it means It's hard to know
2: I'm Mike Cosper and you're listening to Cultivated Conversations about faith and work On today's show we'll hear Jamie's story How he became enamored with philosophy How he dealt with the abandonment By his father in his later years And what St. Augustine might have to say to us today. It's a fun and wide ranging conversation, so stay with us. It's, it's funny that uh, Kyle Eidelman was on this podcast and he and his wife got married when they were 19 and we were talking about it. And, and I said, you know, the, the phrase that we always, Sarah and I both always use is, um, I don't regret it, but I don't recommend it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And Kyle was, had an interesting perspective because he's like, well, there's, there's things that are really hard about being married at 19, but there's things that are really hard about getting married at 29. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a trade-off. I mean, Absolutely. There's yeah.
1: a lot of undoing that has to happen if you're a 29 year old man getting married, right. I think. And, uh, the part probably I feel re- not regret about, but the thing that sort of is a pang for me is I was such a young father. Hmm. Uh, we were kind of kids raising kids now. Mm-hmm. And in other ways there was a beauty to that too, because I, I feel like, um, we were experiencing, We, we also made basically this, to just be very honest, we made this jump from working class life to something like almost a kind of cultural elite experience just because of being an academic, right? So like, you know, the first time we went, our kids went to Europe was the first time we went to Europe. Like we were sort of experiencing things alongside them. But I do worry, um, I think especially my older kids certainly bore the brunt of a, that I was parenting without a net because mm-hmm. the brokenness of my home meant uh, we just have no and Deanna's too by the way sadly now we just had nobody sort of around us except the people God gave us in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, I think my kids are also incredibly forgiving. So we yeah. uh, um, and we will pay them back by being young, energetic grandparents. Yeah,
2: <laughs> there you go. The end of your relationship with your father kind of finally hit you at 36 what was what was that experience like
1: yeah I, I, there's sort of stages I, I would say um when our first child was born our son grayson that was also the first real wake-up call for me which is basically at that point i'm like oh so this is what a father is And you could just leave this thing, you know, like you could just go. Like I, I, I've, I, so my father, you know, left at eleven. I have not seen him since I was twenty-one. Wow. And and only very very sporadically and in very kind of traumatic ways in between those two times. And so it just hit me. It's like, oh. And so then the anger kind of wells up.
2: Yeah. And it's
1: funny. I remember. I should be embarrassed to admit this, but. You know the band everclear Uh uh-huh so everclear had this song called father of mine yep and man that thing when i heard it the first time i'm like this is my anthem and i Mm. i guess i had never i had never given myself permission to lament that Mm. would be now is the way i would articulate i didn't know to say it that way before but both both people around me basically kept and this is this is what divorce does i think to a lot of kids is the adults want to minimize the pain. And so they keep telling the children it's better, we're better off this way. But mm-hmm. I don't know that that's true. So you internalize that story. So I think the birth of my son was um, the beginning of the lament phase. And then uh, I say 36, it's, yeah, it's probably, it might be a little bit younger than that. I know it's when we were part of a Pentecostal church in LA and uh, there was a woman named uh, Karen Bentley and I can still remember we were in this young marriage class and we were, we were working through something and she used the phrase petrified heart mm. which might be a jar of jars of clay lyric I can't remember <laughs> but and she was like I honor her because she had the courage to kind of like confront me almost about mm. an aspect of my character and that was the beginning of my I think stock taking I mean I, I think Deanna has been a constant companion trying to help me do this but um i think uh that was the beginning of my realizing also that some of my to be honest depression and anger stemmed Mm -hmm. from this real root sort of trauma and um uh, only in my mid-40s did i finally then uh find a counselor a christian counselor Mm -hmm. Uh, who helped me sort of work out this story, and mm. and um, in many ways, the the new book on Augustine is the fruit of that soul work we did together. I mm. think, in a sense, yeah,
2: yeah. How so? Um,
1: well, so you know, at, at the heart of Augustine's picture of himself and of the human condition is this sense that we are all prodigals. You know, there's there's so there's a deep Father-son narrative that's going on here, mm-hmm. and um, we tell it as the story of the prodigal son, but really, of course, it's the story of the welcoming, unconditionally loving father. Mm-hmm. And um, I-, I think what what my uh, counselor Tim helped me to do is, it, it, you know, this is over a few years, was to close the gap between intellectually what I believed about God the Father but the the significant gap between that and the story i kind of carried in my bones about my worth or what i had to do mm-hmm. to get a father's attention yeah. or something like that yep. so there was there was a sense in which i started realizing why do i why do i why am i so driven or why why do i have to work all the time or why and and you realize oh I'm actually trying to get somebody's attention. I'm trying to perform mm-hmm. for the sake of getting a father's attention. And then, you, and then what, what Tim just kept, Tim basically just kept announcing the gospel to me, which is, you know you don't have to prove anything to God, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, don't, you, don't, you can't earn this. You don't have to earn it and you can't earn it. You've been found. And so I think it was doing that sort of soul work together that then got me to a place, almost to like hear Augustine anew, and to see some of the dynamics of that prodigal narrative, but also um, uh, really the truth of grace. Hmm. Uh, Augustine is the doctor of grace, and I, th- I think that's what I finally sort of. And and for me to be to be very honest, I, 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 <laughs> surely it's a good thing if scholars are honest about mental health challenges, right? <laughs> uh, I'll just say I, I think I think it's important that we do that, and I would say. Only then did I also start realizing that some of my uh, depression and anger was was bound up with carrying a false story in my gut. Mm-hmm. And and in some ways, I, I think you can only describe it as a liberation. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. A very dear friend of mine, uh, who also uh, from the Pentecostal church back in Philadelphia. W- it's funny. We saw each other at family weddings this summer twice. And we both just realized... We are completely different men than we were at 35. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in a sense there's a kind of liberation
2: that happened in that experience. So I'm I'm so grateful. Yeah. 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 Um, my friend David Zoll was on this podcast. Mm. Um, he'll that episode will air right before this one. And um, he he was talking about how people change and he said, you know, there's only two pathway, pathways to change. One is uh, suffering, deep suffering, causes, causes transformation. And the other is a love that's powerful enough mm-hmm. to, to shift our own desires. Um, which, I mean, yeah. that's yeah, it's yeah. No, I mean, done all the way down. Yeah, but, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, and actually, both of those themes are... are I mean- so you- this episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, memphis tulsa and colorado springs and fully online programs with over 1800 students from 50 countries asbury seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people languages and ethnicities learn more at asbury.to get started this episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in Central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. felt this call...
2: You yeah. go to Bible college, yeah. Um, thinking you're going to be a preacher, yes. Um, what what happens next?
1: Yeah, so, um, so I'm at, at this tiny little Bible college in Dubuque, Iowa, and um, I go there thinking I'm going to be a preacher. Start preaching, but a couple things happen. Uh, one, all of a sudden, I get really turned on by thinking about stuff, <laughs> like so theology. Basically, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is this is sort of making my mind and heart sing. And then I, so then I start thinking, oh, maybe I'm called to be a theologian, like a more sort of into academic track or something. But then, as I'm a sophomore, I think two important encounters. One, I start reading Francis Schaeffer, hmm. and um, I'm like, whoa, okay, this is. So it's actually sort of the philosophy side of all of this existential stuff that's really, really sucking me in. And then at the same time, I discover a very, very important article. What was originally an address by Alvin Plantinga, who's one of the great. Christian philosophers of the past 50 years. And it was called Advice to Christian Philosophers, in which he basically lays out this manifesto of why we need Christian philosophers, what it would look like to do integral Christian philosophy, thinking for the sake of God and the church, and then why that also means sort of being embedded in the mainstream of academia, and not just in sort of Hmm. sequestered spaces. And so when I read both of those things, uh, it all started to come together for me and then I realized, oh, I'm actually I think I'm called to the philosophical side of theology and then ended up doing my, my PhD in philosophy. Um, uh, at four, even though I still obviously lean into theology with that philosophical training, mm-hmm. but I do think it's important. I do think we have lots of trained theologians. We, we don't have as many trained philosophers and I think it makes a difference for cultural analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, In many ways, I I would be very happy to say, in many ways, I am swimming in the wake of Francis Schaeffer. Hmm. Now, anybody who actually goes on to study philosophy has to unlearn a lot of the things they learned from Francis (laughs) Schaeffer. Do you know what I mean? Like, terrible reader of Kierkegaard, terrible reader of Aquinas. But in terms of the spirit of a Christian who's taking ideas seriously, realizes that these ideas have trickle down effects on our cultural life, and then says, this is what it means for the church. Yeah. Um, sign me up, that's, that's basically what ended up being my sort of calling. Yeah. Now, I, I would say, I don't know if it's okay to fast forward a little bit, but sure. w- one of the things that happened is, so when, when you're called to be an academic, you're actually called to quite narrow specialization. It's the nature of the academy to be be highly specialized. And so the first 10 years of my, even though I very much had a calling as a Christian philosopher, the first 10 years of my career, you're getting tenure. So what you're doing is you're mostly writing for the six other people in your specialization who care, you mm-hmm. know, that, and that's, that's, and what was your specialization? French phenomenology. Well, phenomenology, which is a, which is a stream of uh, philosophy that comes from a German philosopher named Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger. But then that's also what informed sort of early deconstructionists like Jacques Derrida and mm. Merleau-Ponty and things like that. Interestingly, fun fact: Dallas Willard was also a phenomenologist. Yeah. So I I think he's he
2: a PhD in Husserl. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: so I think it's very interesting that because uh, I've always thought uh, in some ways I I'm trying to be the ecclesial complement to Willard on the spiritual disciplines. That's why I've always thought
2: of the two of you. No, that's really encouraging <laughs> to me.
1: And so it's so cool that what's in the water of phenomenology that we both landed in that place, and I think it's actually it's a philosoph- it's a philosophy of experience it has an account of c- communality mm-hmm. um, so yeah that that was my specialization. I spent the first ten years you know publishing highly specialized stuff that nobody would read um, but in the early probably around two thousand or so, there was actually a lot of discussion uh you're probably too young to remember this, but a lot of discussion around postmodernism in the church. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of the height of the emergent church oh, yeah. and Brian McLaren. That's and, when
2: we planted sojourn. So we, we were all oh, in, sure. the, in, Interesting. in the heart of all that. Yeah. Um, so
1: a lot of what I heard people saying about postmodernism, and then they would trot out the names like Derrida and Foucault and Leotard and things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Willis? That is, that's not true. You right. know, so I, I realized, oh, here was a touch point, a contact point where my, my academic expertise could be put in the service of helping the church think more critically and, and complexly and sophisticatedly about the cultural moment in which we found ourselves. So I would say that was when I really started to sense a call to be... A translating scholar, an mm-hmm. outreach scholar, somebody who uh, is trying to take what I hope is expertise and ideas, but but lean out and make that both accessible and impactful for for a wider public, the church for mm-hmm. the for the most part. Now, for academics to do that, you really first have to get over a deep inferiority complex that comes from being called a popularizer the Mm -hmm. worst thing you can be called as an academic is to be a popularizer Mm. because what they mean is you're not taking ideas seriously. but but then i realized um well actually there is a sense in which doing this kind of translation work is almost harder then doing that narrow, specialized. When I'm writing for the six other people in French phenomenology who are thinking about these things, we all have this shorthand jargon and you can kind of get lazy and you keep sort of, it's a bit of an echo chamber. Whereas when you want to do this work of actually translating, it takes some, I think, creativity to be able to Mm -hmm. do that. So that's what made me feel like I wasn't selling out. I was actually just answering a different call. Mm. I'm, I'm also really grateful. You know, I teach at Calvin University and it's an institution that on the one hand is pushing people to do that highest, most advanced level scholarship, but it also recognizes as a Christian university that the work I do is also a kind of scholarship. So I'm really grateful. I think God put me in exactly the right place to have this sort of long leash uh, to be able to sort of move in and out of different kinds of spaces. And
2: um, yeah, it's been a ride. Yeah. What was, um, who's afraid of postmodernism? One of the, early yeah. things yeah to,
1: exactly i think yeah. of who's afraid of Postmodernism" is in a way i think the beginning of what now has been my trajectory ever since in fact i think you can you can draw a line from now i won't even remember but you could probably draw a line from i think it's chapter four the foucault chapter mm-hmm. of who's afraid of Postmodernism," uh a book that came out around the same time called introducing radical orthodoxy which is also a kind of translation book mm-hmm. on on um Foucault. And you can basically plot a line that gets you to Desiring the Kingdom, hmm. which then eventually gives birth to You Are What You Love and this sort of trajectory. Hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's that's curious to me. So you would see a connection to your work on Foucault in Desiring the Kingdom. Does he show up in Desiring the Kingdom? No, I don't think he does,
1: actually. <laughs> interesting. But it was, if you can think retroactively, it was totally Foucault. It's crazy that it wasn't... Um, the monastic tradition or liturgical theology that got me thinking about formation, it was Michel Foucault. Mm -hmm. Foucault, Discipline and Punish, his book on prisons, is Mm -hmm. all about formation. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was this kind of um, French atheist entree to then discover the treasures and heritage of Christian wisdom from pre-modern times. So it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of a cool, um, uh, not accident, but appointment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you don't believe in accidents. No, because exactly. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> That's right. Let's talk a little bit about Desiring the Kingdom. I mean, that was mm. that was the first of your books that I came across, and um, just completely blew my mind. Mm. Um you know, my story, I was like I said earlier, I was nineteen when we started, you know, I got married and then the the next month we started having core meetings for sojourn, church. Wow. And um so I stumbled into worship and, and liturgy and all this stuff, knowing nothing, having no training, you know. And what happened for me in reading Desiring the Kingdom was two things. One was and the Foucault thing makes a whole lot of sense, because the whole cultural liturgies thing is a very, I don't know how you'd say it, foucauldian idea? Yeah, I think so. Um, so it, it opened up this way of seeing the world around me in a fascinating way, and it it opened up like how vital Christian worship really is in, in forming. Tell me how you kind of made the connection between cultural liturgies, church liturgies,
1: yeah, no, I, I'm so encouraged that, that that's exactly how I think of it too. It, in other words, it's it's putting on the lenses that help you see cultural liturgies that then raises the stakes of why we need to be intentional about Christian liturgy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and pedagogically, that's why I almost always start with the analysis of cultural liturgies to invite, especially to be honest. Evangelicals to then rethink why they're a, allergic to liturgy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, here's the yeah. thing: you've already been immersed in it in all these other spaces. It's interesting. I'm trying to think of what came first, mm. and it, it's an amalgam. I, I should say I think a huge catalyst was reading this marvelous little book that I'm sure you know by Alexander Schmemann, called For the Life of the World, mm-hmm. and so an Eastern Orthodox theologian who takes the seven sacraments of the Eastern Orthodox tradition and says, here's how they enact a way of life rather than just a worldview. And it's because I come from a reformed tradition where we talk about worldview constantly. Mm-hmm. And and I realized that the worldview piece doesn't do the work you need to appreciate how cultural deformation happens. Mm -hmm. It's probably not an accident either that I had teenagers at this time, Mm -hmm. right? Because now you're just a little bit newly, you're newly attuned to what's at stake in their cultural immersion. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, in some ways I think it was, they were sort of happening in tandem and uh, I wouldn't ever actually want to separate the two of both intentionality about Christian liturgy and analysis of cultural liturgies. I do think the Foucault piece probably primed me to see the cultural liturgy dynamic mm-hmm. first. So maybe it's also tracing my own pedagogy. I see the cultural liturgy dynamic first, and then I'm like, oh, and now I see why Schmemann is talking about what he's talking mm-hmm. about. And so, I, I mean, I was, by the way, I want to say I was always so grateful and encouraged to see then what you did in Rhythms of Grace, mm-hmm. which is because I knew when I wrote Desiring in the Kingdom, it was meant to be a college textbook. Mm-hmm. And you could tell <laughs> you know, and actually it'd be a pretty crappy college textbook because it's it's still so dense and and difficult, and there's way too many footnotes to heidegger but <laughs> I, I I've been so encouraged to see i think of of your book and Tish Harrison Warren's Liturgy of the Ordinary mm-hmm. as um, uh, really the encapsulation of kind of what I wish I could have wrote because it 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 lays it out for audiences that um I think can get a handle on it much more
2: concretely which mm-hmm.
1: is I, I think been really encouraging.
2: Oh that's that's encouraging to hear. I uh you know I wrote that book because I stumbled into this job and there's no manual. For me there was a, there was a sort of a deconstruction journey of looking at my own traditions and going why do we do this? Yeah. Why why do we sing? Why do we you know why do we stand? Why do we sit? Why do we you know et cetera. Et cetera. And uh I always tell people like there's a great line in Orthodoxy where Chesterton's uh, kind of talking about his journey, and he, he tells the story of a, a, a seafarer who gets lost at sea and, and crashes on the shores of England and thinks he's found the new world. And so all the stuff that was familiar to him is suddenly strange and new yeah, and interesting. Oh yeah. And um, that was kind of my experience as a, as a pastor of worship was... You look at it anew. Yeah. why are we doing this why are we doing this and so yeah so your book was immensely helpful and
1: well and your book is a great example of exactly what churches need which is what our our friend john whitley calls liturgical catechesis right i I think the great failure of our churches well on top of just not being intentional about worship do you know i mean like just wheeling in the trojan horses of secular liturgies and then jesusifying them that so that's a huge problem but the other thing is we just don't explain to people why we do what we do when we worship. And so I think actually the heart and hub of discipleship and certainly being enfolded into congregations, whatever a new membership class looks like, it, at the heart of it should be, this is why we do what we do when we worship. And I, I
2: think your book is a great model of I that. I think that's kind. I want to make sure we get to Augustine. Mm. So uh, tell me your, your new book, um, On the Road with St. Augustine. Yeah. Tell me how that, how that book evolved.
1: Yeah, it's um, so in some ways, it grows at, You know, You Are What You Love is a very Augustinian project, as, as is Desiring the Kingdom. Yeah. So in some ways, it, it's an extension of that project. The only thing I will say, too, is On the Road with St. Augustine, I also think of as a kind of co-sequel with How Not to Be Secular. Hmm. So to me, How Not to Be Secular was, you know, obviously, again, me just trying to translate others Charles Taylor's analysis, as you have done as well, uh, of you know, okay, what is this water we're swimming in right now? And if you think of there being these kinds of cracks in the secular, where people may be more open than we sometimes realize, um, then I actually think the 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 articulation of a Christian journey that you find in an ancient African like Augustine all of a sudden has a kind of currency and contemporaneity, um, precisely because I think Augustine's the first existentialist. I, I, I think, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're all sitting here, post Kerouac, post Heidegger, seeking authenticity, on the road, looking for ourselves. And Augustine in, you know, 386 is saying, yeah, I, 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 I was there first, you know, <laughs> and, he, and he thinks, Really, he thinks it's the human condition. He he thinks it is the nature of being human that you're sort of looking for home, and uh, but also it's part of the human condition to experience this sense of uncanniness and exile and uprootedness and anxiety, uh, um, restlessness, the restlessness of it all. And so, um, I, I've just thought and and. I mean part of the argument of the book is this philosophical subtext in which it turns out that St Augustine is a direct progenitor of so many currents of mm-hmm. 20th century existentialism yep. Heidegger, Camus, Derrida, Arendt, you know all of them are grappling with Augustine in giving us the world that we now we swim in. Yeah. So um uh, but I also love it that that you know Augustine is he's ancient enough to be strange, mm-hmm. and yet that gives him some distance so that he can help us to see ourselves in the contemporary moment in a new way. And so um, the wager is that maybe con- confronting someone like Augustine, you you meet Christianity in a way you wouldn't have mm-hmm. otherwise. And by the way, I th- I mean, I, so I I genuinely hope that's people who aren't Christians could mm-hmm. do that. On the other hand, I also hope it's a lot of people who think they're ready to chuck Christianity because the only Christianity they know is worth chucking. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like, I think there's a lot of people who are on their way out of the church. And if all I knew of Christianity was what they know from their quote unquote church, I'd be on my way out the door too. You know, like
2: w- yeah. there's just so much dysfunctional Christianity. Well, you, you talked about worldview kind of kind of stuff. Like it, worldview thinking is really a d- sort of disembodied way of talking about, uh, about Christian faith. And I, I think that's super prominent in evangelicalism. It's very prominent. It's prominent in the churches that I grew up in. And so what happens, I think, is you... You get formed by this, or, or your thinking about Christianity gets formed in this way that when you start experiencing suffering in the body, anxiety, depression, any of those things, they don't fit um, because we don't know how to talk about emotion. We don't know yes. how to talk about emotional health. Yes. Um, yes. And that's, I mean, yes, it's one of the things I love about the Augustine book is you're, you're going right at that stuff mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because that's where people live.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and can we also add and say it, it's not, I don't think it's accidental that if you disembody Christianity, like we're all Cartesian thinking things, um, it shouldn't be surprising then that we are so flat footed and to be honest, ignorant about women hmm. and race. Hmm. Because these are all bound up with the particularities of our embodiment, right? So there's a classic book in philosophy uh, by Genevieve Lloyd called Man of Reason, in which she just tracks and she says, you know, the so-called rational animal turns out to be this white German guy from Konigsberg. Do you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the <laughs> par- paradigm of being rational. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, contemporary Protestantism is is equally guilty of something like that and then it explains why oh my gosh why are we so dysfunctional uh on on gender and race and so i think um this is why i think it's also really interesting that augustine's an african Mm -hmm. and grows up in this kind of biracial bicultural home and knows something about you know what does it mean to live between two worlds um it's it's an intriguing uh
2: standpoint i guess to just reconsider some of that Mm. Yeah, say more about the race thing because that that you've piqued my curiosity. So
1: I I think um, one of the things that happens is if you if you f- work with this kind of thinking thingism, right? You just imagine Christianity as this worldview, this intellectual grid. What happens is is you fall into a false sense of its super culturalness. Do you know what I mean? Like in other words, you imagine it as this sort of a cultural, super cultural thing that descends from heaven. And, and I think Christians, this might be the next book I do. I think Christians, Protestant evangelicals in particular have a, a Terrible sense of how history works. Mm-hmm. Just, just, a, and it's partly because we have this atemporal, super cultural conception of Christianity as if it was just sort of handed down from the sky. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It was gifted to us from a Mediterranean Jew who handed it on to other Jews, who then take it to the gen You know, there's a very, very particular cultural history here. And by the way, oh yeah, Ethiopians were baptized before the Greeks. Yeah. So there's, there's um, a way in which when you dis. Embody the faith, you also detemporalize it. Hmm. And then what happens is you have no way to think about the snowball effects of history. So mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why, um, you know, I, I think a lot of white evangelicals just get so defensive and fragile if we start talking about the legacies of. Of institutional racism is because well what do you talk about I believe X Y and Z Mm -hmm. if you you think that racism is just an ideology do you believe X about Y right then lots of people can sort of comfort themselves no I, I don't believe that but if racism is actually also a posture that gets snowballed into institutions that we all Inherit and those institutions are habit forming. Mm-hmm. Well, now you need a different kind of analysis, and right. that's where I think a more embodied Christianity, a more liturgical Christianity, more sacramental Christianity, just primes you to actually sort of appreciate how the Spirit is afoot in history in the world, but also how the powers and principalities are mm-hmm. afoot in history and and embodies and things like
2: that. Does that does that make sense? It does. I mean, I think I think. I think in terms of principalities all the time, and I think that's, again, I think it's one of these things that sort of modernity and the fundamentalist project and all of that kind of take those out of the equation. You know, it, it, it dries up the spirituality if we're not thinking in terms of principalities. And, you know, Marva Dawn's got that amazing book on it. Yes. And I think she, she says a lot of the things that you're saying there. It, these These powers that are at work in the world are, they're habit forming. They're remarkably subtle. We don't even, you know, we don't even see them. And I think if your framework, I mean, just following your logic, I mean, if your framework is this uh, kind of one-dimensional logic, you know, rational animal kind of thing, when you get confronted with a principality and a, and a power, you you don't know, you don't have a category for it.
1: Yes. Yes. So. And it's it's partly
2: a legacy of our just disenchantment,
1: I think, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, it's it's one of the reasons why. I honestly think the renewal of American Christianity is going to come from Christian immigrants who come to our shores. And th- mm-hmm. this is where the, the great apostolate, I think, of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity in the world is to just wake us up to the powers again, the powers mm-hmm. and principalities. You know, we, we spend a lot of time sort of ooing and awing over, I want to say for the record, I love Tim Keller, but we <laughs> oo and awe over what Redeemer is doing in Manhattan, do yeah. you know? what Nigerian Christians are doing in the Queens, you yeah. know, it's just, it's just a totally different game. And so we gravitate to certain sorts of forms of cultural influence
2: and we underestimate the significance of some of those others. Yeah. It's funny. I, I talked to this missionary a few months ago. You talk, you mentioned disenchantment and it just made me think of this story. They, they do work with tribes and mm. in the bush. And for the first like four months they were there every Thursday, their daughter would get sick. She'd have like flu like symptoms and you know, didn't, couldn't figure out what was going on. They were like, it went on long enough. They were like, I guess we're gonna need to fly to South Africa and get her checked out, all mm-hmm. this. So he's telling one of his uh, national partners you know, this, this story and we can't figure out what's going on. He goes, what day of the week is it? And he said, Thursdays. He goes, oh, that's when the curses go out. Somebody's paying a witch doctor to curse you. And so the curses go out on Thursdays. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It just floored me. That's amazing. Like, yeah. yeah. Incredible. Like, oh, the world does yes. not work the way we think yes. it
1: works. What so. days do the curses go out here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a really steady <laughs> outgoing, yeah. outpouring. Yeah. 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 Oh,
2: man. <laughs> for sure. So, well, this was great. Thank you so much for making Thanks. time for yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah,
0: as well. Now, first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know
2: hey thanks for listening if you want to help us make this show you can go to patreon.com join cultivated and chip in a few bucks thanks a ton to those of you who've already done so cultivated is produced by narrativo we make podcasts at narrativo learn more about us at narrativogroup.com our music is by roman candle our additional music is by dan phelps Come back in two weeks, where my guest will be Jeremy Casello, who, by the way, has a new record coming soon, and it's terrific. As always, thanks for listening.